What a week in lacrosse. Round one of the playoffs are in the books. Another major job opens up. Tawarton finalists came out. We have quarterfinal picks and a special guest. Jack Hayes, athletic director of Brown University, who hosts the NCAA quarterfinals in Providence this weekend. AT, let's just jump right into it. In probably the biggest job news in the last five years, Dom Stodger is reportedly not having his contract renewed, and a new coach for the Virginia Cavaliers is underway. Just for the record's sake, it has not been officially confirmed by the school uh, at the production of this podcast. However, Inside Lacrosse, along with numerous sources on our end, have confirmed it as well. Starja just finished his 24th season leading the Cavaliers, compiling a record of 274 wins, 103 losses in Charlottesville. He won four national championships, advanced to Final Four 13 times, and qualified for the NCAA Tournament 21 times. Starja's overall record, including 10 seasons at Brown, is 375 wins. 149 losses in 33 years as a Division I coach. His 375 wins are the most all-time by a coach at a Division I school, passing legendary coach Jack Emmer of 326. Obviously, A.T., this is huge news. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, I saw this. Everybody has been anticipating that the potential for Dom to not return to Virginia was very real, especially given the struggles that the Cavs have had since 2012. I think they've won one game and lost 15 ACC games, something something like that, something right. brutal like that. So you could see the writing on the wall. You know, I think, unfortunately, for Dom's sake and for the players in the program, but but almost even more so the the, the prospects out there in high school that have committed to Virginia. You know, where does that put them. I think there is no doubt amongst anybody that knows Dom that he is a first-class person all the way. And so his success as a coach is right in line with who he is as a person. I think that um, while he did have times of struggle during that program off the field, I don't think anybody can question Dom's integrity who he is as a as a man, um, and he goes down as the winningest lacrosse coach in Division One lacrosse history. You know, now if this is indeed the last season that he has is coaching Division One, um, so we'll see what happens. So basically, uh, the rumor is he's not going to get his contract renewed. His contract comes up in January, so it's kind of an awkward uh, timing in terms of when the contract starts and stops. Usually most contracts in Division I co- college coaches end somewhere between June and July uh, just because that is the coaching cycle. But given, I'm sure, uh, Virginia is renewing and renewing and renewing his contract, I'm sure at some point during, the, during his time, uh, it shifted a few months to that January start time. Uh, and who knows, over 24 years, it could have actually started in January because that's probably when he left Brown. Who knows? I don't right. really know. You probably know that anyway. <laughs> right. uh, but, you know, let's talk a little bit about replacements. And there's a lot of rumors about going on, like going around about who possibly could replace Dom Stagia at Virginia. In my personal opinion, this does not go to an assistant coach. Uh, this I agree. goes to I agree with a... You well-storied head coach. That's what I think. Uh, Basically, Virginia has the power to pull any coach. Anyone is in play, in my opinion. Um, But the first person that comes to mind for with obvious ties to Virginia is Kevin Corrigan. Agreed. Uh, Went to, to, uh, excuse me, UVA. 
Uh, his father was a longtime AD there uh, and did a great job when he was there. Uh, the one thing that you look at Kevin Corrigan, he's 56, seven years old, somewhere around there. Uh, does Virginia want to go in this path with someone who's a little older? Now, Kevin Corrigan's record and his resume, I mean, it's, it's probably second to Dom. I mean, you know, in Desco, probably one of the biggest resumes out there, considering what he's done at Notre Dame. Uh, another candidate that I would put out there is Jeff Tambroni. Um, and I put his name out, his success at Penn State might not dazzle anyone, but certainly his success at Cornell has. Um, and I think both with the scholarship portion on his resume, certainly his non-scholarship portion and the type of institution Cornell is, uh, and certainly Tambo's uh, well-known uh, character around Division One lacrosse, I feel like would put Tambo up there as someone that Virginia would call. Uh, a couple other names and I'll go over them quickly and you can kind of uh piggyback on this is Andy Shea at Yale. Uh I think get him out Andy- of the league. Get him out of the Ivy <laughs> League. <Hire> him. <laughs> uh I think that Andy Shea's name has to be um, you know, circulated amongst the UVA athletic department as someone you have to talk to, uh, given his tenure at, at Yale and what he's done. But a couple other names um I'd throw out there. Charlie Toomey at Loyola. Why wouldn't, he, why wouldn't he get a phone call immediately from Virginia? And another name, and I know you know you might say, why would he ever leave? Uh, is John Tillman at Maryland? Uh, you know, I mean, yes, when you know five years ago, Maryland, you know, let go of uh, Dave Cottle, and that was probably the second biggest job other than Virginia right now. Uh, I would argue Duke prior to that ten years ago. Obviously, when Pressler left under that those situation, that situation. Um, I feel like Virginia's a bigger job than Maryland, despite the tradition that Maryland has. Uh, and I feel like the success in the first five years that Tillman's had, you got to figure, hey, he's a guy that we got to talk to. But it goes back to Corrigan, I, in my mind, as a guy who uh, would potentially leave. Of course, you just don't know where Maryland stands on. Do you go younger? Do you go with you know proven success track record? Uh, but if Corrigan doesn't, Take it. You got to figure. He's the first thing he says is Jerry Byrne is the first guy you got to call. Uh, if if I'm Kevin Corrigan, but uh, what what are your thoughts on all those names? And other, are there other names at that you would also put down? I, I think uh, I think you hit on a lot of really good names. You look at this job. I agree with you 100. percent This is a head coach's current head coach's opportunity, yep. and I agree 100 percent that any coach coaching anywhere has to look at this job and think, wow, that's, that's the top of the food chain in our sport. Right. And I think that Kevin Corrigan, certainly as a UVM alum has to be considered UVA. UVM UVA, is is a little more North. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he he has to be considered here, but I'm with you. I'm not so sure that, you know, Charlie Toomey isn't as desirable. I mean, Kevin Corrigan's done a phenomenal job building this program at Notre Dame but he hasn't won a national championship yet, and he's been close, and he could do it this year. Could do it this year. You know, yeah. Charlie Toomey has done it, he, and, and he's done it at a place that it is harder to do it at Loyola than it is at Notre Dame. Correct. So, you know, obviously with, with Charlie being a Loyola alum and then being fully funded and then, you know, having a great season right now and 
He's got four years. He's got four years with Pat Spencer. <laughs> yeah, he does. You know, <laughs> just I think jump that, on that kid's back. I, I, I think that, you know, does he have interest there the way that Kevin Corrigan would have interest there? He, he might, but he might not. So I, I see those two guys as the lead dogs. Um, you know, there's no question Andy Shea would be a guy that would be wildly successful there yep. and has done more than enough to be considered one of the very, very top coaches in the game and somebody that, if I'm Virginia, I'm absolutely bringing him into the office to hear you know, what he has to say before I'm making any decisions, whether yep. Kevin Corrigan and Charlie Toomey wants the job or not, I'm bringing Andy Shea in to listen to what he has to say. Yeah, uh, pains me to say it because I hope he never leaves Brown. But how can you not look at Lars Tiffany? Lars Tiffany's another one. Yep. You know he's another one that would make a seamless transition down there, given his ability to get teams to play together and at a place like that that you know recruits itself, he would be wildly successful. Uh, a name that's not thrown around that I think should be a consideration, and I'll go to the Division Three level, and I'm going to go to Denison, Ohio, with Mike Caravana. Interesting. Who is a UVA alum, I think, maybe the, the first four-time All-American player in UVA history, I believe, uh, and was an assistant coach at Virginia and has just done a phenomenal job of, of building Denison's program. Now you're dealing with different animals, but Mike yep. Caravana is as, is as good a coach as, as anybody out there. So he would be another one that you know they may look at. However, I, I don't think that they're going to be short on people expressing <laughs> interest in this job. You know, you mentioned Jeff Tambroni. Look, Jeff's one of the very best coaches. I think he's a certain Hall of Fame caliber coach. Uh, he's another one you obviously have to look at. Although... Let's 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 be fair and call it exactly how it is. He hasn't exactly lit the world on fire since he's been at Penn State. Now, nobody's questioning his knowledge of the game. Nobody's questioning his ability to get his team ready to play. But a lot of these hires are, you know, what have you done for me lately? And lately, sure. Tambo hasn't hasn't performed at the same level as Lars and Andy Shea and Charlie Toomey. So. You know, if he was still at Cornell, I would say that he absolutely has. But I just think that the last four or five years at Penn State has knocked a little bit of the luster off of him as it would relate to securing arguably the top job in Division One lacrosse. I, I agree. I just think that if you're at UVA and you're sitting in a seat in the UVA athletic department, you're thinking to yourself, geez, when Tambo was at Cornell, he had the world of recruits in his hands, and he recruited them. When you're at Penn State, you have a different world of recruits in your hand, and it's tougher to compete against us, UVA. But if we give him the keys of the Ferrari, what is Tambo going to do? Personally, I think he's going to absolutely. I don't. I, don't, I mean, do you think that Tambo is is currently losing recruiting battles to Virginia? I don't think he is. I, I think, think he's. He is. I, think I think he's he winning. Some no. of them. I mean, he may might not have Docs Aiken and and some of those guys, but you know, I, I think he does. I think there are kids that still won't eat, in Pennsylvania that won't even go on a visit to Penn State before they go to Charlottesville and commit. And there, you know, that's just that's just from me and my small knowledge of the Philadelphia area and the kids that are in my program that I I sure. know for a fact 
didn't even go to Penn State before they signed an offer or you know verbally committed to Hopkins and and in Virginia uh, and other schools of the sort. I mean, there is something to be said for tradition. There's something to be said for Charlottesville. There's something to be said for uh, going away to college to a, a, a school that has proven itself as a national championship team year in and year out, much because of Dom's effort. Um, but I think that, you know, they're losing Penn state's losing recruits to big 10 teams. So let's just put it that way. I mean, they're losing recruits to Ohio state. They're losing recruits to Michigan. Who's got no one, uh, you know, no tradition at all. And they've got losing record year in and year out. There's a lot to be said well, for that, facilities if and if everything else. If that's the case, I mean, look, you don't have to sell me on, on the attractiveness of UV. I'd go to UVA every single time I had a Penn state, not even close. Right. But if Jeff Tambroni is the guy for this job, shouldn't he be more competitive for what I'm saying is he's doing an incredible job. Yeah. What I would say is I think he's doing an incredible job with the current recruits that he has. Um, I just think that I know he's shooting a lot higher and like all of us, when we were in the circuit, we were just getting bombarded with, uh, I'm going to wait until UNC and I'm going to wait until Carolina. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting a ton of money from Maryland because I'm in state kid and I can go to Maryland. You know, it's just like those are the battles that you live with. And even with think about how many Penn, like Philadelphia, Pennsylvania kids are on that roster. There's not a lot considering how much talent comes there and the fact that you can give in-state tuition. They're going to Penn every time. True. Those kids are going to Penn. I mean, that's why Mike Murphy's done such a great job. Everyone in his team from Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Penn's killing it in that in that way. And now kids are like, would I go all the way out to state college or would I go to another big town? You know what I mean? It's just kids are are making decision based on academics too. When you rank all the academic schools out there, obviously Penn is going to rank higher than all of them. But sure. you know, certainly Michigan is at the top of the list in the Big Ten. Uh, but then you've got the ACCs and, and Virginia and UNC are up there above Penn State in the world of academics. Uh, and if you're getting a similar amount of money from those schools, and you're also going to be in Charlottesville with tons of sundresses, I don't see why you go. I, you got to go down to Charlottesville every time. I mean, that's you know. I don't, dis- I don't disagree. So another news: Pete Lawrence, head coach at Hartford University. Uh, for the last 11 seasons is stepping down to become the COO of NXT lacrosse in Philadelphia. Pete led the Hawks last season to an 11 and seven or this season uh, to an 11, seven record, second most wins in program history and has reached the national tournament twice during his reign. Ryan Martin will assume interim duties and potentially may even take over in, in official capacity after the summer. AT your thoughts here. Uh, you know, I, I think Ryan Martin, I think it's going to be his job. I, I think he's going to get off of the job, and I think they should offer him the job. Let's take a moment, though, just to appreciate what Peter Lawrence has been able to do. You know, he took over a program that was so rock bottom and won two AM East AQs, two AM East tournaments, and brought them to the tournament twice, including this year with the dramatic 17-16 to 16 win over our boy Ryan Curtis in Vermont. And then steps down to get into other things. I mean, it's kind of how you draw it up. It's it's not quite Bill Tierney's legacy, but let's face it. He took over you know, <laughs> a program that was the worst and underfunded and had no field and yep. no offices and no nothing. And, you know, he came in and he beat the number four team in the country in Albany in the semifinals and then, you know, won in the finals. And this is, and this is what, four or five years ago, he knocked off Ricky Soule. Right. And Stony Brook, when they were 
you know, ranked five, six, seven, something like that. I think they won the tournament eight that year. Like, yep. you know, all, he's he's done a he he. He's done an incredible job, and yes. the sport, the sport, at least I'm not going to say the sport because I don't know what he's doing, but Division One lacrosse is going to really miss Pete Lawrence. The American East Conference is going to really miss Pete Lawrence. He's done a phenomenal job, and uh, you know, hopefully, he is uh, moving on to something that is going to be more rewarding than the last five years because it is a grind, as we know. But he's uh, he's done it as well as anybody. Well, he's going to move into the Philadelphia region and get Penn State more recruits. That's what he's going to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, rumors, AT, Princeton, Jacksonville, UMBC, Vermont, Binghamton, all still on the block. Uh, you've got seven, now seven schools, uh, including Hartford and uh, uh, UVA. Uh, and what have you heard for rumors? I just want to go. I, I just, I've you know, heard my Kevin Connery expressing a ton of interest in UMBC. That's Maryland's defensive coordinator. And uh, you, he, he should get it if that's yeah, the I mean, case. Listen, I mean, he's, 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 uh, he's, you're not going to find a better candidate than him. You know, frankly, I hope they hire Pat Tracy. But Kevin Connery's done a phenomenal job, you know, during his time at Fairfield and up now through Maryland. You know, he's he's earned that opportunity. And if he wants that job and Maryland goes on and wins the national championship or goes to the final four and Again. final game and just loses, you, you <laughs> have to you have to you know, he's gotta be the front runner in my opinion. And that to me is an assistant current assistant coach's job. Right. Uh, I somebody agree. who gets a gets a first time head coaching opportunity there. Uh, Mike Kruger, Ryan Curtis's assistant up in Vermont. I saw him this past Saturday at the St. Anthony's New Canaan game. And I think he's a, he's an obvious hire. You know, he's been part of what they've done over the last few years. He has been a head coach before. I just think that that Vermont should not, they should just shut the door and make sure Mike Kruger stays on campus and hire him, just hire him because they're not going to find anybody that's going to be more passionate about being there. Who's more capable of continuing what Coach Curtis has done to get them to this point. So Mike Kruger's an obvious hire at Vermont, in my opinion. I haven't heard anything about Binghamton, but I haven't looked into it either. Because <laughs> I don't care, because it's boring me. Uh, you know, Princeton, now that one we talked about, Gary Gate interviewing there. Um, Andy Copeland from Fairfield interviewing there. Uh, I had heard over the weekend that Kevin Cassis had been offered the job. I, I I find that surprising if they had offered him the job. Right. Same here. Uh, I just think he. I don't think it's. Take... I don't think it's out of bounds if they offered. No, Kevin no, no. I, I, listen, I think just... he would be a great candidate, and yeah. I think he's earned, you know, certainly the opportunity to, to be, you know, a top candidate consideration for that job, but for. The rumor mill to be saying that Kevin he was offered been offered the job. I find that's, that's I find that hard aggressive. to believe they're going to offer anyone the job until the national tournament is Correct. over. Now Correct. they're going to get out in front of it and yep. they're going to say, you know, look, come speak to us about this job, and they're going to do, be as proactive as possible so that they are in a position to hire a great guy as quickly as possible. But they're not going to hire the wrong guy right. because they want to do it as soon as possible. Right. No way. Right. So right. I, I I think that. He's absolutely someone that that deserves very strong consideration and would do a phenomenal job there. Right. But let the tournament play out. Let's see what happens with some of these other coaches 
and see who's interested in this job. You had mentioned Sean Natalin in the, in the past. How do you not? How is he not the front runner based right. on what he's done there and right. his current? You know, Lehigh struggled this year. Kevin Cassis was on top of the world two, three years ago when you know they were a top eight program. But but Towson is is there right now, right. and Sean right. Natalin coached there, yep. and he, you know he. He still he could go win the national term. He just knocked off Bill Tierney. I, you know, I, I think that that I think that search is far from over. Uh, but I think that they certainly are getting some great candidates to look at there as they should. I think that there's a couple factors um, that will always start the rumor mill before anyone before. First off, Princeton is not in the tournament. And secondly, they're going to do their due diligence just like any other athletic department would. And the first people they're going to start with are also the teams that are not in the tournament. Right. And so because they're available because they're available to talk to. (laughs) So Kevin Cassis getting a phone call does not shock me at all. He deserves that phone call uh, and probably has gotten that phone call. Andy Copeland, another guy that no question, he got probably got a phone call and he deserves that phone call. Uh, Gary Gate got a phone call when his son plays on the squad. Uh, and so there's an easy relationship with his son playing at Princeton right now and the athletic department reaching out to one of the greatest players, to actually the greatest player to ever play and hold a stick in his hands uh, to just reach out and say, hey, how you doing? And just, you know, BS right. around. Work for and- Donowski at Duke. <laughs> right. Or I should uh, say work for Duke. Right. <laughs> so, so from that standpoint, you're going to hear a lot of names in these rumor mills, uh, but a lot of those names are because those guys are not a part of the tournament right now. But I can guarantee you the day that Memorial Day weekend ends, you're going to hear like five names real quick uh, in, in the whole process with these schools. One last rumor I heard, Sean Kerwin was reached out to by Jacksonville, uh, your, uh, your alma mater, uh, the offensive coordinator, second year assistant uh, in Division One. Uh, already getting entertained uh, Division One head coaching offers. Uh, one, very interesting. Two, uh, I heard he has no interest at all. Uh, Good. <laughs> uh, but now with UVA opening up, you can bet many coaches that are entertaining potential offers here and there or maybe entertaining some interest are definitely going to sit back and wait for the dust to settle uh, because UVA UVA, and certainly even Princeton are going to open up a lot more opportunities. It's really nice to be an assistant coach uh, in the Division I lacrosse world right now. When we come back, round one games, we're going to start off with Syracuse and Albany. Maximize your comfort. Syracuse, Albany, a tale of two halves, AT, after a commanding 6-2 halftime lead for the Danes. Syracuse came storming back in the second half to kill the third quarter, 5-1, and finished the second half outscoring Albany a total of 9-3 in the second half. Uh, this game was a lot closer than many expected because of the faceoff X was a lot clo- closer than many expected as well. They ended up going 50 in 50 for 50 on the day or 50 50 on the day uh at what were your thoughts in this one yeah it's exactly exactly what i have here as well tale of two halves you know albany gets out in front you mean knew that zach ornstein for albany their face-off guy had 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 shored up that area for this team leading up into this game but i just didn't think there was any way he'd be able to handle the mousetrap 
and he won what the first five against Ben Williams. Right. And then Ben Williams obviously rebounded, I think went 12 for 17 down the stretch to, as you said, to have the stat finish it even, but you know, Sergio Salcedo for Syracuse, their midfielder, two goals, two assists in this game. He just continues to really present matchup nightmares for anyone. He's just too quick for the people. He's like a water bug. He, 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 he just reminds me so much of Dom Finn. He really does. I mean, he's just, if you, if he's going to beat this guy every time, whether it's a pole or a shorty, and he's going to score if you don't slide. And if the primary gets there and the secondary is late, he's going to feed for a goal. And he just, it just has seemed to dominate everybody. And as the season goes on, I think he's, I really think he's surpassed Nick Mariano as the premier midfielder for the Syracuse Orange. Right. And, you know, then you look at the goal and coming into this game, you're looking at, you know, Albany's offense can hang with Syracuse's offense. You figured Albany was going to get beat at the X, but Albany was going to make up for it and goal with Blaze Reardon, who's established himself as, I think, one of the top you know, two or three goalies in the country this year, yet in this game, Blaze Reardon, Blaise Reardon did not show up, did no. not play well. He didn't have a good game at all. He didn't have a good game, and and Evan Malloy did have a good game. 12 saves, 57% save percentage. You know, t- to me, that's the game. I mean, that's that's if they lose 11-9 and, you know, there's that much of a difference in the way that the goaltenders play and all the other stats are somewhat even – you know, surprisingly, Syracuse is playing the goal by Evan Malloy, who's been great lately. Um, you know, that, that ended up being the difference in this game, I think. And, and you know, to the credit of uh, to Malloy, look, they did it, and they've, they've advanced. They did. I, I just, every time in that second half, I felt like they were shooting from like 15 yards, and Blaze just wasn't seeing the ball very well. There was a couple definite screenshots there on those far distance shots, but I just feel like, you know, given Blaze's track record, those would have been saves. Totally. Um, and, you know, I mean, he's going to have a bad game here and there, but unfortunately, when you do have a bad game in the tournament, unfortunately, he, you don't get to play again that year. That's uh, right. So, Brown, Hopkins, this was awfully one-sided, A.T. Pentro yeah, mentioned you can't, be, you can't beat a team when they go 20 for 28 at the face-off X. But here's the deal. I'm looking at the whole product. Jack Kelly was almost 70% in the net. Dylan yep. Malloy had eight points, who's arguably the winner of the Tawartan Award, four and four on the day. Then Brown's defense holds Ryan Brown to zero points. I think it's more than just the face-off, Petra. <laughs> I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to find a way to beat Brown as a coach in my head, and I don't think I can. Uh, what were your thoughts here? You know, I watched the whole game, obviously, as an alum of Brown, and I, I got to be honest, the first sort of – First quarter, I'm looking at that game, and, and Brown was up two zip at the end of the first quarter, and I was a little nervous because Brown had been generating a ton of high quality scoring opportunities, and yet they were only up two zip. Now, you could look at that and say, you know what, they're, they're, things are going to turn around, and, and that's a good sign. I was actually nervous because I felt that coming into the game, you know, Hopkins is a, is a seasoned program. That's won many national championships right. and has been there many, many times. Experience you know, factor. Experience. And, 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 you know, Brown, on the other hand, has had an unbelievable year. And they've had a couple of letdowns throughout the year that lost, you know, that, that resulted in losses to Bryant and to Harvard. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, oh, no. You know, if, if Hopkins can get out to a decent start and keep it close, is Brown going to start to 
develop a lump in its throat and start to get nervous here. And that's kind of the way I felt at the end of the first quarter. Jack Kelly had, you know, three or four unbelievable saves. Yep. Uh, I remember those. You know, and Brown had six or seven great opportunities that they only scored, you know, once or twice on. And, and you look at those things and you kind of go, God, you know, the, this the Brown could be up six zip, you know, right. or seven zip. The game's over. But they weren't. That didn't happen until the second and third quarter, and then it happened. You know, for, for Brown to steamroll Hopkins, you know, at a rate of 12 to 3 over the course of the second and third quarters and really pull away and, and make it. Eight to one third quarter. Eight to one third quarter. Yeah, I had predicted a 19 to 11 game. I thought that Brown would win the faceoffs, which clearly Will Garall and company did, as you said, winning 20 of 28, feeling a 40 to 24 ground ball advantage. I thought that would happen. I thought that Yale, I'm sorry, I thought that Hopkins would struggle to clear the ball against Brown's ride, and that happened a little bit as well. You know, but, but, Dylan Malloy, some of the plays that he made, you know, when he came up on the right side and ducked under the double and stuck it far side for his first goal, blew me away. Later in the game, he's coming up the right side again, and the crease defenseman for Hopkins with it's in perfect position off ball covering. This guy turns his head for one second, and Dylan Malloy throws it right to the back of his helmet, I think right to Blastery's stick, who just dunks it. Yep. Um, it, it might have been Henry Blinn. I don't know who, but but Brown is Brown is is such a scary team, and and we've said it before. They're I think the most complete team in the country with their faceoff group, their goaltending, their offense, the uh, you know the individual superstardom of Dylan Malloy, but their defense is great. You know you got Tullet Kemp up top, you've got JJ Encyclio who. It's just phenomenal hands. Brown, Brown's Brown's got it all. Um, I'm going to stay down on the farm and worry about the first play of the first game, uh, <laughs> uh, first play against Navy this weekend, and, and not get ahead of ourselves here. But this result did not shock me at all. What did shock me was only sort of the slow start for Brown. Uh, two things that sh- that really surprised me uh, when you look at the total product of Brown. Brown had only 12 turnovers in the game. For a team that has fast pace, they turn the ball over more than some of uh, more than most teams in Division One. They're yep. averaging over 16 turnovers a game this season. But to think that now they're hitting a stride where they're only turning it over 12 uh, times in the round one of the playoffs is a scary thought for any team that's going to play them. And number two, they have another home game with Yale losing in round one. There's no easier path to the Final Four than Browns right now. And I just I look at this next game against Navy, and I think to myself, man, it's almost a carbon copy of Hopkins, uh, a Johns Hopkins team that they just pummeled in one round prior. Um, I, I would disagree with you there because. Um, well, you're just you trying know, to stay humble because you just you're listen, hoping I, I am you're coming no down question. to the no coming no down to the farm. <laughs> no question about that. Look, the difference between Navy and Hopkins is that Navy is a defensive team first. Sure. Hopkins is an offensive team first. Yep. You know, Navy's faceoff group is very good. They've got one of the best long stick middies in the country. They've got one of the best close defensemen in the country. John Connors played great in the goal this past weekend, but I don't think Navy's offense, their entire offense, is scary in the same way that Hopkins's offense is Correct. scary. You know, they've got Casey Reese, who's got a bomb from outside. They've got Patrick Kina, who, you know, two and four this past weekend, 
you know, shows that he can step up and play well in the big games. But they don't – the Navy offensive players don't scare you the same way that Hopkins' offense does. So, you know, I said – in last week's podcast that I thought Yale had a much tougher out with Navy than Brown did with Hopkins because Navy plays defense first and they play hard. You know, Hopkins, I just didn't, it just was a bad matchup because Hopkins as an offensive team, they weren't going to outscore Brown. No No way. way. No way. You know, but this now, now with Navy Brown playing Navy, you know, does Navy have the guys to, to, to limit Brown's offense to some degree? And I think they do, you know, will they hold them down? I pray to God they don't, but they've got, you know, it's, it's a defensive team versus what many would consider an offensive team in Brown, even though we say they're very, very complete. So I, don't, I see Navy being a much more formidable opponent for Brown than Hopkins was. Well, let's move on to that game. Yale, Navy. John Connors was the story here with eight huge saves in the second half to really get in the head of the Yale offense. Casey Reese with four goals. Kena with six points on the day, two goals, four assists. Uh, you know, we talked about this prior for the Yale goalie situation and the faceoff situation. It, it was what ultimately did Yale in uh, in their season, 2016 season. 10 of 26 at the faceoff X and 31% in the net. I mean, we talked about this for multiple weeks, but but they kept actually, you know, they made the goalie change, which was a good change for a little bit. Uh, they never really quite solved the face-off X issue, but they always compensated in other aspects of the game to, to, to you know, overcome it. But again, when you want to be a Final Four type caliber team, ten of twenty-six isn't going to get it done. What do you think, AT? Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. We've said it all along that we felt that Yale was a Final Four team, just based on how well they played team defense, uh, that their offensive scheme and personnel played very, very well together. But the, the question mark was always going to be, you know, can they win enough faceoffs to eliminate that as a reason why they wouldn't win, right? right? And right. going ten for twenty six is not is not going to get it done. But what really compounded the issue was the fact that John Connors, as you said before, twelve saves, fifty five percent save percentage versus just six saves, and roughly thirty two percent for Hoyt Krantz. That's the difference, right. you know. What it, and, I, and look, Andy Shea, these guys made the right decision. You know, right. they they switched their goalies up. They gave Hoyt Krantz the start after Phil Hufford struggled in the first half of the season, and they made the change. Yeah. And 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 it was the right decision. And they gotta go into this game with this decision. And unfortunately for them, they just they just didn't get it done at the X or in the cage. And that's just. That's the difference, and that's you know the three goal loss at, at home. It's got to sting. But what really impressed me about this game was Yale losing faceoffs the way that they did, yet found a way to win the ground ball battle, thirty to twenty three. Yale <laughs> Yale just plays really really, really do. tough. I mean, they play really tough, and that's the same sort of stat that they had against Maryland when they upset them, you know, in the first two weeks of the season. Yale's going to be back. I mean, Yale just reloads. They've got a culture there that, um, you know, hopefully hopefully is, is what Virginia has. If they <laughs> Shea, get him out of the league. That would be great. But uh, great win for Ricky Sol. I'm really pumped personally for Ricky Sol. I know that he's, you know, received some criticism over the last few years. 
And I just love seeing him be able to get another laugh. Whether he gets the last laugh in the end, I don't know. But he's certainly laughing after this result. And a great, great win for Navy on the road against a fantastic Yale program. Ricky Soul very emotional after the game. And I, I don't think that people understand why he was. First off, shockingly, people are calling for Ricky's head right now. Uh, they think Ricky should be fired. And the fact that they think that is completely insane. Uh, and there's a lot of talk about how Ricky, despite having another year on his contract, wasn't given an extension after winning the Patriot League regular season. And more thought that Ricky would be out if they lost to Yale. Um, so if you look at it in terms of what Ricky was seeing, he was watching 40, 22-year-old kids gutted out for his job, his life, and his career. It's, it's a crazy thought. And you bet, you can bet that Ricky Soul will show interest in some of these jobs uh, if they reach out. And it's a large part, of, uh, part due to Navy's lack of confidence in his ability to get it done. Uh, but yet... You know, here all he's done is gotten there every single time. He's right. slowly and surely built the program over and over. And it's an insane that an athletic department and alums can't get behind that and immediately give him more support and more time to do what he's already proven he can do at a place like Navy. Uh, it, 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 go ahead, go ahead. No, you're, you're dead on. I mean, and the best thing about Rick is that Rick does it his way every time. And people hire him. They bring him in. And he goes about turning programs into winners his way. He's done it at Dartmouth, which is makes him walk on water in my eyes. <laughs> uh, you know, he's done it at Stony Brook, and now he's done it at Na Navy. You know, he's brought in three teams, three Division One teams, to the NCAA tournament. Right. And you know, while he might not do it in a way that makes the alums feel super special at the schools that he's coaching at. Right. You know, right. get it done. So shut up, get out of his way, and be supportive. I mean, right. you got to – come on. It's painful, but it's – but I, I love it. I, I love seeing Rick be successful for that exact reason. Uh, Notre Dame versus Air Force. Not much for me to talk about here. Notre Dame found a nice stride against a team that was good all year. Uh, but given their schedule and league, uh, really couldn't hang with the best teams on a consistent basis. Uh, Notre Dame's defense just smothered Air Force, and there's not a lot an Air Force team can do uh, with the superior athletes on the offensive end that Notre Dame has. Uh, one thing that I think, you know, looking into this one, Notre Dame's attack got really involved in this one, and we haven't really seen it as well, or I guess we, we have. Uh, towards the end of the season, we're starting to see Notre Dame's attack really put up some numbers, but putting up nine goals and four assists on the day, uh, they're going to need a lot of that when they see Carolina in the next round. What do you think here, AD? You know, this this result actually was a little more lopsided than I thought it would be. I, I thought Air Force would give them a better game than this. You know, poor game for Doug Gaucho, who's had a great season. You know, he really has had a great season, but seven saves and 32% save percentage is just not going to get it done. And but it, it wasn't representative it of his whole season either. You no. Know? Listen, Same with Blaze Riordan. No, he's he's he's. I, I would think that I would think that he would be an all-American goalie. HM. I, I I would think he would be based on the year that Air Force has had, and him being the MVP of the team. Um, I I think over the course of the season, I would I would hope that he would get that accolade because I believe he's earned it. But he didn't play well in this game, and he needed to play well. Uh, you know, you look at as you said the the scoring. Mikey Wynn, five and one. Brendan Collins one and four. Ryder Garnsey three and one. 
oddly, Kavanaugh and Perkovic, just two goals and three assists combined. And those two guys are, you know, what many consider to be the two best offensive players on this Notre Dame team, two first-team All-Americans. Now, I don't have them as first-team All-Americans on th- in this season, but they didn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't do too much statistically in this game. And I believe that's actually a very good thing for Notre Dame, that you're starting to see some other people handle the bulk of the scoring. I think it's going to only make Kavanaugh and Perkovic more dangerous this weekend when they play North Carolina. And, you know, later on, if they're fortunate enough to beat the Heels, and I hope they don't. I hope the Heels win. But you look at the game and statistics, you know, are right in line with what you would think. Notre Dame won the ground ball battle 28-17. to 17. The saves battle 11 saves for 7. Notre Dame was 3-4 for four an extra man. And they rinsed Air Force at the X, winning 17 of 26. So, not surprising. Marquette, Carolina. Given, I, I, you know, clearly we've talked about Marquette being a succeed and and everyone on the planet had Carolina beating Marquette, other than the Marquette team and staff and fans themselves. Uh, given that Carolina had traveled to Wisconsin, the weather was exactly the way you thought it was going to be. I th- I'm pretty sure there was snow. On a the wet fields. freezer. A wet freezer. Brutal. I feel like this game felt a lot closer than it was and should have been. Uh, what were your initial thoughts here, AT? This game, Marquette played Carolina a lot tougher than I thought that they would. You know, Carolina, I was watching the game, and I'm rooting for Carolina. Uh, I'm rooting for Joe Bresci. And, you know, the game was 6-3 Carolina, and I left to go watch the New Canaan-St. Anthony's debacle, which New Canaan was just awful <laughs> and lost. It was so irritating. Um, but, you know, I wasn't surprised to see Carolina win. I just thought they would win by more. Right. Stephen Kelly 11 or 8 for 11 in the first half at the X, finishing 12 for 21. You know, I knew he would, I knew he would get the job done there. Um, you know, but handed to Marquette, they do compete, especially with their wings. You know, Brian Balkum, the Carolina goalie, just eight saves, 48%. He's going he's gonna to need to do better than that this weekend against Notre Dame. But it was about even, you know, Cole Blazer, 10 saves, 50% for Marquette. Carolina won the ground ball battle 27 to 20. They outshot them 37 to 26. Um, you know, Tanner Thompson has predicted three good goals for Marquette versus, you know, Michael Tagliaferri, three goals, one assist. Pontrello, two goals, one assist for Carolina. I, I thought Carolina won by more. The guy that I think gets too much playing time for Chris is for Carolina is Chris Cloutier. I just don't love his game. I think he's I think he's slow. Well, I know he's obviously a very, very talented finisher. I just am. I just feel like. I hope. I hope they don't play him that much against Notre Dame this weekend. <laughs> he just doesn't. He doesn't give him anything on the ride. He doesn't give him anything on ground balls. I mean, he must tear it up at practice because we don't go to the practices. I, I just watch the games, and he just seems to me like somebody that could be exposed and taken advantage of. Um, and I hope it's not this weekend. So I, he, he he perplexes me why he gets as much playing time as he does. What I, do you think about I that? Think, uh, I think he's probably one of those guys that you have, and every co- every coach, whether you're in high school or, or college or even, you know, youth, you look at a kid and you have him on the field and you're like, this could, could this kid could easily put up five goals today. Right. At any given point, Cloutier could put up five goals today. And I think that that's why they continuously give him opportunities. He had a great game against, uh, I believe it was Notre Dame, uh, the last time they played them. Um, he had a great game. 
Uh, I'm actually almost positive he had a great game against uh, Notre Dame. So he has the ability to pull the trigger, be able to finish. Um, I do see some weaknesses in the game that you just mentioned. Um, but at the same time, maybe they also don't feel as confident about the guy behind him either. Uh, I mean, Carolina, look, Carolina's played 15 games, Ryan. And he has t- 26 goals, 11 assists for 37 points. Okay? He's played 15 games. Yeah, he's a starting attackman. He's got he's got just under two goals a game as a starting attackman. You know, it would be one thing if he was sitting there and all he did was catch it and throw up the goal, but he did it four times a game. It's not like he's getting ridebacks. It's not like he's saving a bunch of possessions with offensive end ground balls like Joey Sankey and 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 you know Matt Holman and these guys used to do. It, it just seems like the stats don't. Match reward, up. yeah, and and I, I, you know, I don't want to butcher the kid, but this is in your face, and so I'm in his face <laughs> a little bit. I, I, I hope he, I hope he sticks it to me this weekend and goes out and goes six for seven, and they end up beating Notre Dame. I would love nothing more to see that see that happen, but I just, uh, I, I just, I just, I'm, I'm surprised that he gets as much PT as he does for them. Loyola Duke, who'd have thought? That getting out and pressing out on Miles Jones was the answer to stopping him. Well, I've never said that before. Bruckner with six goals. Matty Dwan. <laughs> Bruckner with six goals. Haywires with six goals. But it was Pat Spencer's game. He's earned every award he's gotten this year and has earned almost every award he hasn't gotten this year. Right, right. Eight points, three and five. What a player he is. And just being a freshman, we've got some pretty exciting times uh, for anyone who's a Greyhound um, a fan. What would you think of this one, E.T.? Uh, well, I, was, uh, I couldn't have hit the nail more on the side <laughs> in my assessment of where this game was going to go. I had seen that. I picked Duke, Duke as well. Duke, that Duke had beaten Loyola 15 to Six in the regular season, I felt that Kyle Rowe was going to destroy Loyola at the faceoff X again this time after going 20 for 24 in the regular season. And to his credit, he won, you know, 23 out of 31. So he did his job. And but he's the only one that did his job. But I guess I guess Jack Bruckner did score six goals in the first half for Duke. But the story of this game was Miles Jones getting chewed. Yeah, you know he goes turnover machine. He was a turnover machine and trail checked. He looked like he had no energy and and was just you know didn't have a lot of interest in even being there. Right. And as we've said throughout the season, Miles Jones has the ball in his stick way too much, way too much. to take a series off, let alone you know, a big portion of the game. And that that killed him. That killed Duke. Um, but as you said, Pat Spencer, three goals, five assists. He was three and three in the first half. Zach Hayworthers, six goals. Incredible offensive display by Loyola to go along with a phenomenal effort and goal by Jacob Stover. Yep. 16 saves, 60% save percentage. I believe Jacob Stover is still undefeated as a starter here. And you look at this performance, the fact that Loyola won the national championship a few years back. Loyola could be a dark horse to win this whole tournament. Um, they really could be. And, and I'm so happy for Charlie Toomey, who responded when he drew Duke. You know, it just wouldn't be the same if Loyola and Duke weren't playing in the first <laughs> round. And for him to have that response after losing the way that they did in the regular season had to give his players and staff a ton of confidence 
in their week of preparation leading up to this game, and they certainly did that the right way, leaving no gray area winning 16-11. to You know, you look at a guy like Miles Jones, and he's up for Tour Ton finalist, and you look at the way he played this weekend, and I feel like if he's not involved in a scoring right away in the game, it's almost like he's like, ah, well, oh, well. That's how I felt like. Bruckner's got six goals at that point, so he wasn't going to be the man of the hour in the game, and he just didn't treat the ball with enough respect in that first half and even somewhat in the second half as well to put up the numbers he needed to put up in order for them to win. Like, you know, I, I just, I've, I've played with some guys who, who in my career are w- w- way, way better players than me, like in light years better players. But for whatever reason, their ego, and I, I'm not, I'm not speaking specifically, it's just this is the way it looked. When they, when they are not the man of the hour in the first, like, two or three goals of the game, like, they shut down. They shut down. Like, they're just like, ah, oh, well, this isn't my game. So, you know, I'll try to get mine. And they try to do too much to get themselves back into that game, you know, in, in terms of statistically. And I don't know if that's Miles Jones. I don't know if that. But it sure as hell looked like that. When Bruckner had six, there's Miles Jones turning it over fourth time for an immediate fast break goal the other way. It's just Awful. really it's really frustrating to see that when you know he's got more in him. And, you know, to watch him, like, jog behind and, like, not sprint, it's just it's it's frustrating to see. Yeah. Um, but moving on, Maryland versus Quinnipiac. Henningsen shows up for finally, and you've been asking for this, um, you know, all season long. And I know he's dealt with some injuries, and I also know that it's against Quinnipiac. But fourteen of seventeen versus a decent opponent. Um, but if Henningsen can find a rhythm going into this tourney, uh, I, I I see as Maryland is going to be a really really hard team to beat, especially now they got cues round two. What do you think, Harry? T? Yeah, it was great to see Austin Henningsen return. Go 12 for 12 in the first half and essentially put the game out of reach. You know, Maryland isn't a team that really blows people out scoring-wise just because of the way that they they play a little bit of a slower pace. I don't think they play slow as much. I'll back off that where in the beginning of the year I really was. Uh, but I, I, I'm not surprised by the score. That's like a that's about right, you know. Uh, but Austin Hankson clearly was the key to this game, and I'm not surprised at all by this result. I, I'm really looking forward to watching him and the mousetrap go head-to-head this weekend. <laughs> I think both of those guys have very similar moves uh, at the X, and it's going to be a really, really good matchup, and it's going to go a long way in determining who wins this game. I, I predict it's going to be a, a, a even matchup at the X, and this is going to be a very, very tight game in the Syracuse-Maryland game coming up. You know, as predicted, Maryland spread out the scoring as always. Matt Rambo goes three and two. Brian Cole three and one. Henry Rest three and one. You know, again, Maryland just is a, is a team that is very difficult to scout because they have so many guys that can put up between three and six points at any given time. That how you decide to play it really dictates who ends up scoring for them. Right and. You know, it's not like, look, if we go in and we shut down A, B, and C, we're gonna we're gonna shut them down. That's just not what happens. You know, it's like a it's like a water balloon. You you shut down one area of the water balloon, and it all goes to the other area. You know, and then, and then that beats you. You know, Burnlore just seven saves, but only needed seven saves. He was just saving fifty four percent of the shots versus Jack Brust, who had a very formidable task, ten saves, but forty four percent. You know, it was just a slow death for Quinnipiac. <laughs> it was. Right? Maryland wins the face-offs. They're very, very balanced. They just kind of wear them down. And, 
not surprised that, that they were able to get this win the way that they got the win. Well, AT, I know you were surprised at this one. Denver, Towson, nine turnovers in the first half to only one for Towson. 14 turnovers for Denver in the game, only seven for Towson in the game. Tyler White shows us what he's capable of doing. 13 saves for about 60% in the cage. But you got to figure that turnovers and saves for Towson and turnovers for Denver uh, eliminated the 20-22 to 22 face-off advantage for the Pioneers. Yeah. On Twitter, they were talking about how hard would it be to go perfect in a game. Well, Trevor Baptiste was more or less perfect in the game until the end. Actually, a couple face-offs towards the end he actually lost were crucial face-offs in the game, and he lost them. Uh, but what a crazy game to watch given the stats and the way Denver gave Towson. I feel like Denver gave Towson that game. What were your thoughts here? Well, I had to, I didn't get to watch this game in its entirety because I was busy coaching Duquesne in 7A Red to a 6-2 win <laughs> over the abrasive Greenwich 7A team that we physically just beat up. Um, girls or boys? Uh, girls, Ryan, girls. Girls, girls across. Yep, <laughs> we are a very rough team. We're a rough bunch, and we charge them up. Uh, when was the last time, if ever, Bill Tierney, loses back-to-back one-goal games as he did down the stretch of the season. Two 10-9 losses. First to Marquette, the Big East Finals, and then to Towson on an even bigger stage than that. Just, you know, you can't give Sean Nadalin and his staff any more credit than, than that. It's just incredible. I mean, an incredible win to go do that at Denver when many people had Denver winning the national championship this year. Uh, you said it before, total domination at the X by Denver, yet the other areas, they just were sloppy. You know, that many turnovers, twice a two-to-one turnover ratio from Denver to Towson. Tyler, Tyler White, same thing, almost a two-to-one save differential compared to Alex Reedy in Denver. It looked uncomfortable when I was watching it. And really happy to see Spencer Parks got four goals, two assists. You know, the UNC transfer, he was the number one high school recruit in the country a few years back, committed to Carolina, the earliest that anybody had ever done that, I believe, you know, as a freshman that year. And due to his style of play, and, you know, he ended up transferring to Towson, and here he is in the grade eight, you know, uh, after his probably his best game as, uh, you know, as a Towson player. So I was I was totally shocked in this game. I thought Denver's offense would be too much for Towson. I just thought the shooters from Denver would get to Tyler White, and they had the opportunities to do that with the success they had at the X, but they just couldn't get it done. And frankly, uh, you know, I'm really happy that Towson is in there and Denver's not. It goes to show when so many people talk about all these quote-unquote number one recruits in the country and how they quote-unquote don't pan out. Well, let's look at the first 10 quote-unquote top recruits in the country. They all go to the same damn school. So <laughs> you can only right. play so many guys at once. And so when these kids start to figure out, well, I don't really have to go to X university, and I'm, I'm not going to sandbag any, any, any university out, out there, but when I choose to go to a different school and I have an opportunity to play right away and cement and you know, prove my legacy there, I'm going to get a lot of opportunities, more so than when you do if you go to these top institutions or when you see the top 15 recruits in the country go to the same damn school. You know, it just goes to show Spencer Parks and, and what he's been able to do because, man, what, what a bust he was, A.T., right? 
What a bust right. he was. He goes off to Towson, and now he's a stud. And it's just because he was given an opportunity. And it's not right. to say that the kids at UNC didn't earn their spot. They did. But Spencer Parks did, didn't get enough to get in there consistently enough to prove himself. When we come back, player and coaches of the week, we've got our Tawarton finalists and our opinion on them. And then we also have, since we both pretty much have the same Tawarton opinion, we went one and above, uh, and we've got our thoughts on first-team All-Americans. We'll be right back. Maximize your comfort. Players and coaches of the week. A.T., who is your coach of the week? Uh, there were two guys, but in the end, uh, I, I had to go with Charlie Toomey and his staff. Charlie Toomey, Matty Dwan, uh, Ryan Moran, Steve Vickness. You know, for them to avenge a 15-6 to regular season loss to Duke, handle it the right way with the media after the draw came out, and get to work and prepare to manage their team and to beat them with that much conviction, uh, really, really impressive. I think that Loyola is a dark horse to win the whole thing, playing their best at the most important part of the season. My coach of the week, Charlie Toomey. My coach of the week, Sean Natterlin, of course. Probably the biggest win in his career. Um, Definitely. Uh, and certainly couldn't come at a better time than round one of the tournament, arguably... Uh, other than, I would say, Quinnipiac uh, versus Maryland, I would say Towson versus Duke. He was the biggest underdog in the tournament. Uh, and for him uh, to go out there, and while you say it was a one-goal game, AT, I really don't think it was really much of a one-goal game. I know that you know Denver scored a couple goals with you know 35 seconds left. You didn't think it was a one-goal game after Zach Miller pinned the corner with 13.6 seconds? Yeah. And they win the faceoff? I mean, I'm with you. Over yeah. the first half of the game, you knew, you knew it was going to happen. You're like, oh, my God, it's going to happen again. It, it, it there was a slim chance, but I just didn't <laughs> see it. I didn't see it. I thought that was impressive for them just to even score two with under a minute left. Never mind, three. True. Um, but Sean Natalin, easily my coach of the week and arguably yours too, AT. I appreciate you. Yeah. Charlie Toomey. AT, yeah. your player of the week. Seems like I'm giving it to him every week, <laughs> um, but hard to uh, hard to not acknowledge going three and three in the first half and finishing the game three goals, five assists. Again, Loyola, I'm going to freshman Pat Spencer. All he does is put up eight points and wins. And so Pat Spencer, my player of the week this week. My player of the week, John Connors from Navy. Uh, in goal, eight saves in a huge second half to propel them over the Yale Bulldogs. Uh, if you could pick out another upset, uh, this was definitely it. Uh, second to uh, Towson. Uh, but what a performance in the cage in the second half for 12 total saves on the day. Um, John Connors is my player of the week. AT, the Tawarton finalists were announced. Here they are. In no particular order, but there is a particular order. Uh, Dylan Malloy, attackman at Brown. We've talked a lot about him this year. Connor Canizero, attackman at Denver. We haven't talked about him a lot this year, but we all know he's an incredible player. Matt Landis, defenseman from Notre Dame. Miles Jones, we just got over talking him, midfielder, Duke. And Ben Reeves, we've talked about him a little bit this year. 
attackman at Yale. AT, we, we pretty much come to a consensus on this. It, it pretty much is Dylan Malloy's trophy to lose. Uh, but what do you think about both Dylan Malloy and then the rest of the pool of candidates? I, I'm with you. There's no way I think Dylan Malloy could have the worst game of his entire career and still have this game locked up. <laughs> uh, he's earned it over the course of the season, and he's earned it when the others were playing well. And you look at the list, Miles Jones is coming off probably his worst game in the last three years. Matt Landis is a stud player, but he's a defenseman in a great system, the best defensive player in one of, if not the best, defensive systems in the country. Okay? You've got Ben Reeves, who is a great player and and has had a great season, but not close to the season statistically that Dylan Malloy has had playing the same position, and their team lost head-to-head to Dylan Malloy's team during the regular season and just had an early exit against Navy in the first round. And Connor Canizero, who I think many felt was probably the front runner for this award, you know, before the season started and maybe halfway through the season, justifiably was probably at the top of the list based mm-hmm. on who Denver had played versus who Brown had played, mm-hmm. but has fallen off, in my opinion, significantly down the stretch here and obviously losing to Towson in the first round. This is Dylan Malloy's award. He's, he's, he's won this award, putting together maybe when we look back in hopefully three games from now, we can look back and say that an attackman has never had a season as good as the season that Dylan Malloy has put together a player, in 2016. A player. a player. That's right. Not just an attackman. Um, you know, and and so this is Dylan Malloy's war- award. I, I think that, you know, you look at some snubs. I, I think if you're going to put Matt Landis on this list, you have to put Michael Quinn on the list as well, mm-hmm. the defenseman from Yale who unfortunately injured his, his knee down the stretch Came of the Came back. What a stud, though. Played in the yeah. game. Yeah, he's such a, such a stud. Um, and then... You know, I, I think Jack Kelly, again, in my opinion, he is the first-team All-American goaltender out there. Maybe the people at Maryland and the people up in Albany may disagree with that evaluation, but I think Jack Kelly could easily be on this list. Um, and so th- those would be the two guys that, if snub is the right word, that I'm using it snub. Do you have any snubs that you think, guys that should have been considered that weren't? Pat Spencer. Um, and I think he was a snub because he wasn't put on the list to begin with. I mean, yep. he should have been put on the list in the top 25 easily. And there were some guys on that list. It's just like, if you're going to put, you know, three attackmen on the list, how was Pat Spencer not in the top three attackmen in the country? I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I think he's ahead of Ben Reeves, to be honest with you. Yeah. I don't think he's not ahead of Dylan Malloy. But no. I think he's ahead of Ben Reeves with his entire body of work this year. Now, Ben Reeves was the Ivy League Rookie of the Year last year. Yep. And so there was name recognition coming into the season that Ben Reeves earned. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. He is a stud. He is. But, but Pat Spencer didn't have any of that name recognition. Well, and he was Patriot League Player of the Year. Not Rookie just, of the Year. Player of the Year. And right, he did. Right. I mean, there's right. one thing to be the rookie of the year. I mean, that's that's great. You're the best freshman there. But he proved himself to be the player of the year. Right. Uh, well, he was both. He was both. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> right, right, right. He took both right. of them. So I, I don't have any. But this is Dylan Malloy's, um, you know, trophy to, you know, what do you call it? To win. Uh, I do like how Miles Jones uh, gets into the Players' Tribune uh, right as the day after he loses 
He gets a big article in the Players' Tribune about he's the face of the game and how John Donowski calls him the face of the game. Um, I think there's something to be said for athletic departments, players, coaching staffs, uh, campaigning for their guy. Um, and there's do, no they question. They do it in football, right? Yeah, they do it in they football. Do. They do it in hoop. They so do. It just, just, it's the natural progression that lacrosse would start to do that as well. It makes sense. Um, and, you know, certainly the timing was perfect. On May 15th, he loses a game. And on May 16th, or May 14th, or whatever it is, he lost his game. And on May 16th, that article comes out in the Players' Tribune. Um, just perfect timing, in my opinion. Uh, but at the same time, if I was Brown Athletic Department, I'd be looking up for Rolling Stone magazine for an article on Del Malloy. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's go to our – since that was pretty much pretty easy um, to pick our Tawarton finalists and talk about the other guys. And, and I just actually want to touch on this. Matt Landis, he's a great player. But I actually don't think he's the best defenseman on that team. I think John Sexton is the best and most impactful player on that Notre Dame team. What Maybe. he does at the faceoff X, what he does uh, on the defensive end. Listen, if you want a guy to shut somebody down, Matt Landis is going to do it. But if you want a guy that's going to pick it up off the faceoff, if you want a guy that's going to be able to cause turnovers, you want a guy that's going to be able to push transition, John Sexton is that guy. Uh, and so from that, be- from that point being said, we're going to go into our first-team All-Americans. And AT, let's start attack. Who are your first-team All-American attackmen? How many do you have, and who are they? I've got uh, three, and I'm going to put them uh, in order of age. I, I got Dylan Malloy as an obvious first-team All-American attackman, no question about it. Um, I got Ben Reeves from Yale behind him. Mm-hmm. And I've got freshman Pat Spencer. I didn't put – I had Connor Canozero in there through 75% of the season, but I just think down the stretch, Connor Canozero disappeared. And down the stretch, Pat Spencer has taken Loyola, let's face taken him to, you know, the quarters. And I, I, I have Loyola winning this weekend. I think that – I mean, I, I got him beating out Connor Canizero for that last spot. So I've got Dill Malloy, Ben Reeves, Pat Spencer um, as my first team All-Americans. At attack, I have four, and I think they're going to give it to four. And they should give it to four, in my opinion. I have all the same guys you have. Yeah. I have Dill Malloy as numero uno. He's going to win the Tawarton. He's going to be attackman of the year. He's going to be player of the year. He's going to earn yeah. it all. Ben yeah. Reeves, I have right behind him. I have Connor Canizaro in there because I really do think he deserves it despite them losing. And I agree with you. He hasn't performed incredibly down the stretch, but he's still, if you're going to draft a team, Connor Canizaro is going to be the top five draft choices. But uh, that's different. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I agree. But we're talking about just purely attackmen. I've got Connor Canizaro in there, but I also have Pat Spencer in there. I have four attackmen in there. Yeah. Um. So... And I know that they've done that in the past. They've done four attackmen. They've done three attackmen. They've done four midfielders. So I took my four at attack, and I'm only taking three at midfield. But, A.T., who are your three midfielders? I actually went four midfielders. Ah, right, because you went three at attack. You're going four here. Yeah. I like it. Um, Well, I I start with Miles Jones. Look, he does it all. You know, I think they give him the ball too much, and he carries the ball too much. And, you know, maybe he got tired over the course of the season. He probably... He could have run more than anyone, any other <laughs> midfield 
or the whole country. I mean, if you really think about right, it, right. it's ridiculous. But 70 points as a midfielder is, is just incredible, and he's earned that as the best midfielder in the country. Um, you know, his line mate, Deemer Glass, you always hear about Miles Jones first and Deemer Class second, but Deemer Class had 50 goals from the midfield. 50. Including seven when he brought him back single-handedly to beat Syracuse in the regular season. And Syracuse you know, is still in the tournament, by the way. Syracuse uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, <laughs> Deemer Class, 50 goals from the midfield. I don't, I don't care where you play. That is off the hook. And so I got him solidly in there. Uh, Zach Miller for Denver. I just think he's just, he's hit so many big shots. He gets his points within the framework of the offense. 50 points for a midfielder, 27 goals, 23 assists. It's just very, very balanced. And Denver, you know, was arguably the best team in the country throughout the season. I just think that, again, I think he's earned it. I think he's a first team All American. Um, And then the last one may surprise you a little bit. Although I have spoken about him on recent podcasts, and that is Syracuse's Sergio Salcedo, twenty-eight goals, twenty-three assists from the midfield. Fifty-one points. He just, yeah, just fifty-one points, and it's not as though the ball in his is in his stick all game long. You know, he's had fifty-one points. You know, as they run, you know, a lot of offensive players. And he just seems to play his best at the big times in the big games and doesn't make a lot of mistakes. And wow, does he have swagger. I just love, I love that kid's swagger. I love watching him play. So Miles Jones, Deemer Class, Zach Miller, and Sergio Salcedo are my first four first team All-American midfielders. Well, you'll be surprised to know that I had a very similar list. I only had three, um, and your Zach Miller was a great call. I did not have him on my first-team All-American midfield because they do run this hybrid. Like He plays a lot of attack. He plays a lot yeah. of midfield. You know, He does get up there on the wings. Um, it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, I think they put him up as a midfielder. I didn't think of him when I was doing this as a midfielder, and I should have, and I think that's a great call. So I would also have four guys if I'm thinking Zach Miller as a midfielder, but... Uh, number one, Miles Jones. I agree with exactly what you said. Um, I think, you know, 70 points as a midfielder. I mean, if you're going to go through the offense through one guy, I mean, he did a great job. I think Deemer Class is also a first-team All-American, just exactly you said. 50 goals from the midfield is pretty incredible. He's actually pretty close, or was, pretty close to your record at 150 goals from the midfield as well. Thank God they lost. <laughs> um, but they did not. he did not get it. I think he needed about... 23 more, <laughs> which is incredible to think. <laughs> he should have played attack a sophomore year like I did, Ryan. He would have had more than that. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, from my standpoint, Teamer Class earns it too. So you got two guys. I mean, that was Duke's yeah. offense all year with two midfielders True. all year. Uh, and I also had, and I came down to it. I'm like, where I could, this was tough. I really couldn't find another midfielder. I mean, Sergio Perkovic doesn't deserve first team all American. No. Uh, he's no. only got like 30 points. You could name him uh, probably two. He might have 30 more in the rest of the tournament, though, based on how he played last year. <laughs> probably. Um, but I've got Sergio Salcido as well. And I looked, nice. at, I looked at Nick Mariano. He's got five points less than Sergio Salcido. And I yeah. know Nick Mariano was going back and forth, attack midfield. And they were trying to figure it out. Well, he's, he's a midfielder. Uh, and they put him in the right spot now. 
but Sergio Salcido and what he's done at the back end of this season has been very, very impressive. So I have three guys. I did not put Zach Miller in, but if I did have to put a fourth in, I didn't think of him just because they do play him at attack and midfield, but he is probably a midfielder in the eyes of uh, the Denver offense. So I've got him. Short stick. I, I, yep, I, had, I had, sorry, I, I had also looked... Uh, Tyler Pace was another one from Denver that I looked at. Uh, Michael Tagliaferria, although at the end, Michael Michael Tags, his numbers weren't quite yeah. there enough. He was like 25 and 7. Yeah, there's However, a bunch of 30-point scores at midfield. Yeah, it's just a bunch of them. You know, what I liked about Tags is that he he sticks big goals at big times. You know, it, it, and he steps up. And he, I, I just, I like the guys that get it done at crunch time. I looked at the Maryland guys. You know, Brian Cole had the best numbers out of that group. And, but it, but it just feel like. I looked at Henry Blinn at Brown. I thought about him as a first Well, he's an attackman. Though. I mean, he's uh, an attackman. Bailey Tills. Bailey Tills. That's who it was. Yeah, he's Bailey got a Tills ton of points, too. Year. He he's has. got a ton of points, too. He has. Short stick D mid. Um, who'd you have here? Um, I don't have a lot of verbal reasoning. <laughs> behind this, but I got uh, Isaiah Davis Allen from Maryland. Uh, he just, it, it, it hasn't really been a year where we're looking at this and we're thinking, well, there's Kevin Drew. You right. know, there's, it, 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 there hasn't there's, been a guy Abbott. that's, yeah, right, that, that, that I think has been obvious um, other than other than him. And you know what? I'm, I'm glad that he was the guy because I, I don't have a lot of terps on this team. Oh boy! Yet, oh boy! Arguably, uh, you know, the best team in the country are pretty close to it. So I, I, I had Isaiah Davis Allen. I had Isaiah Davis Allen as well. Um, you know, you've got to be able to, if you're going to look at, you know, a top defensive midfield, you got to look at the top defensive teams. And I look straight to Maryland as a team that one Isaiah Davis Allen does everything all over the field. He pushes transition. He does a great job. So I got him there as well. Long stick midfielder, AT. What do you got here? There's a couple of guys. There's a lot that, of good long stick midfielders. Yeah, there's really a, there's is. there was like right about five guys that I thought were right there. A lot for one. Uh, and, and I came down to two guys that were actually on the same team, yep. in Alec Tullett and Larkin Kemp. But in the end, uh, I went with Larkin Kemp. So tell I me just, this, you're a Brown guy though. But tell me this: yeah. Is Alec Tullett considered a close defenseman and not a long stick midfielder? Because Larkin Kemp comes off the field, Alec Tullett doesn't. Am I wrong with yeah, that? Yeah, no, I, I think I think that um, you know it depends on who they're playing. But Alec Tullett has played up top and down below. Uh, but I think with the emergence of how consistent JJ and Cyclio has played, and the fact that there are so many faceoffs. Right. And that these guys stay on <laughs> right. afterwards, you know, that I think that they have felt that they can they can save them. I think if you're, you know, playing against Brown and there's a timeout and you're coming out and it's a dead ball restart, you're going to see Alec Tullett out there. And I think you're also going to see Larkin Kemp out Absolutely. there. And I think you're going to see J.J. and Cyclio. So I, I would say that uh, it's a great question, but I see him bouncing up top and down below. I just feel that. Those guys are so interchangeable, but I just I like I like Larkin Kemp's. I like the job he's done a little bit better. So I've got uh, I do I, you know Larkin Kemp is definitely the front runner on this, but I do have a different one. I have John Sexton in here, Notre Dame long pole. Yeah. Uh, for one, uh, he terrorized my Billerica Indians uh, for four years in high school, uh, and it was brutal to watch. But he's an incredible, incredible player, uh, very much like Larkin Kemp. 
uh, but probably more so less on the swag than more of getting the job more done. Physical. He's yeah. just more physical. He's just angry. I love watching him play. If he's not a first team All American to Larkin Kemp, you know, okay, I'm good with that. But if he's not the second team All American, I'd be really disappointed in the uh, All American uh, voting. Uh, but that's who I have as first team All American long stick midfielder. Now let's get to the defense, ET. Yep. I only have three defensemen in here. Uh, Me too. Okay, great. So, uh, who are your first team defensive players? Before I go on, I'm just going to say John Sexton has only three goals and zero assists, which is normally a. Uh, look know, at, look a, how many cause turnovers he has. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I agree. I guess you're looking at more of a defensive long pole versus an offensive. Correct. Long pole. Correct. So, uh, I can meet you there. Um, so my my first team All American defenseman. Um, you know, in order of who I think are the best, uh, and this may shock you, but I'm going with Michael Quinn from Yale. Number one. Number 44. Yep, number one. I think he's the best defenseman in the country. Uh, unfortunately, got hurt down the stretch, but I liked him the best. Um, Matt Landis, I had behind him uh, right there. Mm-hmm. And then my last one is Liam Burns from Marquette. Uh, I like him a lot. Defensive player of the year. Uh, they had a great upset win over Denver, and their defense was one of the best in the country. And and he's he's the best player in that group. So I think that he's earned it. I got I got him as the third guy. I uh, I like your I like your picks. I have Matt Landis as number one. I, I really didn't actually put him in order, so to speak. But I have Matt Landis and Michael Quinn as one two. I don't yeah. really care where you put them in order, but they are consensus in my eyes. First team All American defense. But my number three is Matt Dunn from Maryland. I looked at him. Uh, yep, I, I like I like him a lot, but I also like the Burns kid from Marquette. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were four close defensemen and Burns was included there. But I like Matt Dunn at Maryland. I think that if you're going to ask Kevin Connery who his number one go-to cover guy is on one of the best defenses in the country, he's going to point right at Matt Dunn and say, that's my guy. Um, yeah. And so that's why I have him in as my top three, but I do like. Oddly, did yep. did, you, did you consider uh, Bergdorf at all from? from I did Denver? not because I saw I, him I get roasted at the end of the game against. Towson, I didn't either, I didn't and either. I did not consider him in there at all. Yeah, I, I, I like your pick, Matt. Dunn. I like that a lot. Uh, first team All American goalie. I know where you're going, At. Who is it? Um, I am. I'm going up to Providence. Um, Jack Kelly from Brown. I think he's just. I think he's continued to do it all game long. Even even in the two losses to Bryant and Harvard, he still had over 15 saves in those games. Incredible. He just he's just incredible. And Lars Tiffany has said that he's the best team captain that he's ever had, and that's a big statement. And you know, let's hope he has three more games to play because he is a pleasure to watch, and he was phenomenal this past weekend against Johns Hopkins. Yeah, I mean, I watched him against that, uh, Johns Hopkins. You know, just watching him against Yale as well earlier in the year. Um, Jack Kelly was also my first-team All-American. Uh, you know, Burnlore, uh, you know, he was close. I just, he doesn't, he makes the saves he should in a really good defense. Uh, he's, he's also made some saves that, wow, I can't believe it. But I think Jack Kelly just makes more of those saves, uh, especially with the pace that Brown plays. He's going to see agree. a lot more shots um, than Burnlaw does. Uh, but that's who I have too. Uh, facing off, this was a, this was kind of interesting. But uh, at who do you there's have a, here? 
This is the, you know, there's about seven guys you could go with. Go, go, don't don't name your guy. Name name kind of all the seven that you were thinking of. Uh, well, you, you know, you have to obviously look at Trevor Baptiste. Of course, you have to. Of course, um, you know, you have to look at Ben Williams from Syracuse. You have to look at uh, Kyle Rowe, Duke from yeah. He was he was phenomenal. Uh, I think you have to look at Stephen Kelly, even though Stephen Kelly's numbers in terms of winning percentage weren't, you know, high 60s the way these other guys were. I just think that he's done such an incredible job of wheeling wins out where maybe they didn't have that advantage. Um, I just I I really like the way that he competes. Um, Dylan Protesto. Hartford. Dylan Protesto. I, I, I think he's been phenomenal, though. I, I just think the problem with him is that I just don't think that they've played a quality enough schedule to really feel great about voting him in. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that 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 was my that was my problem with him. You know, Paul Modesto had a good year from Villanova, but kind of fell off down the stretch. Oh, and he also mm-hmm. got smoked by the guy. I know you're going to put in there too. He he did. Um, that's right. And then and then Austin Hengson, although his overall body of work just hasn't he was hurt for, you know, at least half the season. I just he just he, he didn't play enough for me to really justify strong consideration. If he had played the whole season and continued to get right there at seventy percent, then it's undeniable, but he just hasn't. So those those were the guys. I'm probably leaving out a guy or two, but those were the guys that I would be looking at. Ultimately, um, I went with Will Garall from Brown. I like his move the best. You know, his move to me is a little different than what Henningsen does at Maryland and what Ben Williams does at Syracuse. And those two guys are going head to head this weekend in the Maryland Syracuse game, and it's going to be really fun to watch. The reason I like Garall better than them is I think Garall does a better job of securing just the ball and minimizing the interference that his stick has with his opponent's stick. It's a little cleaner of a move. It's a little it's a little less upfield and a little more down the line. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, helping Garal, and I'm sure he'll be the first to tell you, is the fact that he's got the two best poles on his wings in Tullet and Kemp. But if they decide to to not slide to Will Garal. I mean, he's not afraid to go in and score. He's stuck two right off the break at critical times against Hopkins, you know, in the tournament game this past weekend. He stuck three off the break against Virginia in the last regular season game. He's he's a force. I mean, he is a force. I just think that, you know, I, I, the goals that he scored, the timing of it, winning 70%, he wins cleanly you know it's not really mucked up i just think that he's he's done it i i got i got him as a first team all-american uh i i went through him for a while but i do think he has a quote-unquote on an unfair advantage with his with his wings um and you know it is what it is i mean that could be the difference between him getting first and second team all-american um, mm-hmm. But I do have Trevor Baptiste in here as the number one guy, um, and the reason I just and the reason I give him the nod is watching him face off, win the face off. He's actually a very slick player. 
Like he does a lot of things with the ball that no other faceoff guy in the country does. And like whether that's, you know, a simple like toe drag or, you know, a behind the back shovel pass or, you know, just the way he's able to maneuver the ball out of traffic and get it to his wing play because I don't think he has wing play. Uh, and I know that, you know, Zach Miller plays on the wing simply just because Baptiste can get him the ball right away. Uh, and everyone's going to back off. Like, Let's play subtle defense. True. Um, True. So from that view, I also think that, like you mentioned before, with, um, you know, prior winners of, you know, awards, Ben Reeves getting, you know, more love because he was, you know, Ivy League Rookie of the Year. I think that Trevor Baptiste being the first team All-American last year, I think that he, it's it's ultimately his award to lose, in my opinion. Uh, and did he do enough this year to, or didn't do enough this year to lose it? I, I just don't think so. And that's all. I, I, I listen. I you can't. You can. Those guys are. Those guys are so good. Right. Just remember though that Garal beat Baptiste at the X during last year's tournament game. He not only won the statistical battle, which I believe he was thirteen out of twenty-one last year head-to-head against Baptiste. He actually controlled the ball in those wins about 60% of the time. It's one thing to tie up Baptiste and win because you have Kemp and Tullock coming off the wings. You know, he actually controlled the ball against Baptiste head-to-head, right. which is what makes me feel confidently that if Brown is able to win this weekend against Navy, I feel confidently against whoever ends up winning out of that Syracuse-Maryland game. But... First things first, he's got a deal with Navy and Brady Dub, I believe his name is, who's very, very good. So he's going to have a battle on his hands. But but I'm with you. I mean, listen, you know, Trevor Baptiste, as a freshman, came out of nowhere and did what he did and earned it last year. So I, I could I could see your point for sure. There. This is the end of the In Your Face segment one. We're going to call it episode 14A. Uh, we've got another episode with Jack Hayes. Athletic Director at Brown University. Uh, we also have our picks for the week, and we have hashtag Ask Towers. Uh, so that'll be on the second segment of this week's podcast, Maximize Your Comfort. <laughs> <laughs>